Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Howdy, folks. This is my first ever ad here on the Jim Rutt Show. And it's for Network Wars, a new game that I recently released for iOS. It's available on the Apple App Store. Just search for Network Wars. That's two words, network and wars. Or go to networkwars.com. An Android version will be coming soon. Network Wars is a turn-based strategy game where your goal is to defeat four AI armies and take over the network. It's trivial to learn and simple to play. A typical game lasts about five minutes. I like to say it's deceptively simple, but profoundly deep. You'll find that despite its amazingly simple mechanics, Network Wars takes real strategic depth to master. Every game is different with a new set of challenges and opportunities. I designed Network Wars for a particular purpose. I designed it to be a good workout for our human skill of heuristic induction. So what is heuristic induction? It's the ability to extract useful rules of thumb from noisy and incomplete data. It's how we actually navigate in the world, and I strongly believe it's very closely related to the idea of general intelligence. My game testers reported great satisfaction from gradually improving their play as they learned to see patterns and develop a collection of tactics and strategies. They could actually see their win-loss percentages continually improve. I also got reports that once one had a decent level of mastery, playing Network Wars was a quick entry into a flow state. We know from research that flow states are good for our mental health, though a few people did report that the game can be a bit addicting, so be careful. One of the reasons I wrote the game is one of the things that pisses me off about mobile games today is that they are often claimed to be free, quote-unquote, but they're full of ads, time limits, in-game purchases, and other highly annoying come-ons. Network Wars has no ads, no in-game promotions, and no time limits. Just unlimited fun and good exercise for your mind for 99 cents U.S. dollars or the equivalent in your local currencies. Check out Network Wars, that's two words, at the Apple App Store or at NetworkWars.com. And if you enjoy the game, I'd really appreciate it if you could recommend it to a friend or two. Thanks! Today's guest is Robin Dunbar. Robin is Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at Oxford University, and his research is concerned with trying to understand the behavioral, cognitive, and neuroendocrinological mechanisms that underpin social bonding in primates in general and humans in particular. He's best known as the proponent of the Dunbar number. That is how cognitive limits and agent dynamics limit our capacity to friendship to approximately 150 people. He's also known as a proponent of the view that gossip and social grooming more generally were key drivers in the evolution of human language. Welcome to the show, Robin. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, I've been following your work loosely for a number of years. And in fact, in some of the work I do in the social change area, that Dunbar number is talked about a lot, probably understood a little bit less than it could be. And uh, so it was a really welcome opportunity to jump into your work in more depth and learn more about it. To that end, I recently read your new book titled Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. 
And it, you know, hits on the things we talked about where your research is focused, but also goes considerably off into other areas as well. It was extraordinarily interesting. And it was fun to read because you had lots of little asides, right, about the, you know, the history of the Dunbars and how the McDonald's are kind of generic Scotsmen and all kinds of interesting things. Oh, well, it's, it's, life is full of these one thing leads to another streams of thought. The world is full of interesting facts. Yeah, and I like the fact that you didn't edit all those out. Too many academic authors, you know, say, oh, I can't put all that stuff in there, right? Doesn't sound professional. But it actually makes it much more enjoyable. In fact, I recommended the book to my wife this morning on those grounds. And lots of good content and pleasurable to read. What more can one ask, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, let's, uh, let's get down to it. One of the things that was interesting and I think important for our listeners to understand your work is that you define friendship fairly broadly, right? When you say friends, you include relatives, romantic partners, and even pets. What do you see as the uh, fundamentals that unify these different classes into an intelligible grouping? I guess it's that they are all relationships you have that have meaning for you. That's the essence of it. They're, they're the individuals, and of course that may well include your pets if, if you have special pets, who, you know, you'd, you'd put down your mug of tea and go off if they asked you and help them out. That's basically what it is. Yeah, that was interesting because I'd never really thought of pets in that same class, but yet, you know, we've always had very close relationships with our pets and, you know, like, uh, particularly our last one. I just passed away last September. He belonged in our in our ring of five. He actually did, right? I'm sure he did, yes. And boy, you know, when they tap you on the knee and say, it's time to go walkies, you put down your book and off you go. Yeah, so he was particularly uh, interesting and my wife would be trying to do something on her computer and he'd come up and nudge her mouse hand and say, no, 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 no more computer. Time to go for a walk. <laughs> Or time to go chase birds, another one of his favorite activity, right? Not that he ever caught any, but he'd you know, put the fear of God in him, that's for sure. Uh, hated any birds that were black. And we concluded this was because when he was a young puppy and he had a bone in the yard, a crow came down and was pecking at the marrow in his bone. And henceforth, he did not like ravens, he did not like crows, and he did not like vultures. I tell you, uh, the world is full of these people who will try and steal your bone from you. That is true. And you got to be prepared to run them off. So the first thing that you dig into is how important friendship and friendship type relationships are to human well-being. In fact, you say this, loneliness is turning out to be the modern killer disease, rapidly replacing all the more usual candidates as the commonest cause of death. And I love this. This is probably my favorite quote in the book. It will no doubt get me into trouble with the medical profession, but it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that you can eat as much as you like, drink as much alcohol as you want, slob about as much as you fancy, fail to do your exercises, and live in as polluted an atmosphere as you can find, and you will barely notice the difference. But having no friends or not being involved in community activities will dramatically affect how long you live. So tell us more about that. And how do we know this? Well, I think it's one of the kind of big surprises of the last 10, maybe 15 years has been the absolute avalanche of medical studies, in fact, 
showing essentially exactly this effect, that the single most important factor affecting your psychological health and well-being, even your physical health and well-being, indeed, even your likelihood of dying in, into the future, is just the number and quality of close friendships that you have. And it, 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 it always comes out ahead of all the usual things that your friendly neighborhood doctor worries about on your behalf. That's, of course, to be fair, you know, one shouldn't ignore one's doctor's advice at the best of times, but but there is a sense... At least not entirely, right? <laughs> there, is, there is a sense in which, you know, the overload uh, on the health system, probably everywhere in the world, certainly in Britain here, uh, would be massively reduced if the problem of loneliness was solved, because that actually not only causes most of the visits to GPs, they just want somebody to talk to and the doctor's the only person who'll keep seeing them, but also loneliness really kind of sets you up for all sorts of consequential psychological and physical diseases. It, it, you know, you're much more likely to become depressed and develop Alzheimer's and even you know, sort of physical diseases like heart conditions and, and cancers if you are lonely than if you're surrounded by friends. And of course, friends here includes close family, but it's those kind of five maybe core friendships, what we sometimes call the shoulders to cry on friendships, because they're the ones that will put their coffee down and come to your assistance and aid and succor when when you uh, ask for it, which is uh, of course more than most other people will, will will consider doing, but those those inner core friends really make a big difference to your sense of well being, your engagement with life in general, and through that, there's knock on consequence for your physical health. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it was very interesting. In fact, he quoted some work from Christakis and Fowler's work using the famous Framingham. Yeah study where they followed sort of everybody in the town of Framingham, Massachusetts. I used to live not too far from there. And they found uh, all kinds of things. And one of the things uh, I thought was quite interesting is that you can think of friendship, they found they can think of friendship as a network effect, right? That if your friends become more happy, you will too. Absolutely. Your friends get fat, you in increases your probability, right? I've been a bad influence on some of my friends, I suppose, in that regard. <laughs> Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that, the friendship network as a propagation mechanism for behaviors and even uh, health conditions. Yes, well, I, I guess it's one of those uh, mysteries of, of science, really, but the good folk of Framingham never anticipated how famous they would become. But famous they all are, and we thank them for it. But yes, this Framingham study really was quite extraordinary because they've been following that community up for, for many decades, which allowed uh, Nick Christakis to kind of look at the consequences of changing patterns of, of friendship, as it were, for your psychological and physical health and, and, and sort of extraordinary things like how likely you were to give up smoking. If your closest friends gave up smoking, you were likely to give up smoking. If they changed their diet and ate far too many uh, hamburgers, you would follow suit. And of course, all the disadvantages of physical uh, well-being that follow from far too many <laughs> fast foods. A remarkable study, really, in, in, in the quantity and quality of information it's given us, but it really is a very striking effect. Your best friend has an enormous effect on, on your well-being and uh, physical and mental well-being, 
And there, your friend's friend also has an effect. And indeed, your friend's friend's friend even has an effect on you. So it's a sort of ripple that sort of spreads through through the community and binds us all together in this sense. Yeah, it shows how important these friendship networks really are. And it kind of makes sense, you know, from our evolutionary history, which we'll talk about later. You know, in terms of this loneliness epidemic we hear about, I did a quick Google this morning to see what I could find. And I found a Harvard study that said 36% of respondents reported serious loneliness, 36% feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time or all the time in the four weeks prior to the survey. That's a big ass number. This included 61% of young people aged 18 to 25 and 51% of mothers with children. I mean, those are that was shocking, shocking to me, particularly the 61% of young people, yeah. 18 to 25. I remember back in ye good old days, long goddamn time ago, when, man, that was, your whole life was nothing but sociability at that age. Something must have yeah. changed. I can see you're a party animal, Jim. I will confess in my misspent youth, but I am now a, a calm and sedate older gentleman. <laughs> Very good. Yes, no, I mean, this, I think in a way, this has been the big kind of shocker in many ways of the last, uh, well, couple of decades, really, that the kind of 20 somethings generation seem to be developing this extraordinary kind of pandemic of loneliness. And I think it's because what's happening is that, you know, where you grow up and then where you go to, 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 to school, to university, you're kind of wrapped in a cocoon of a community, either your home community, school community, your family, extended family community, and so on. Or when you go to university, you are in a dorm with a bunch of guys and, and, and you have a naturally sort of made community there provided for you, if you like. And then suddenly after you graduate, you get a job on the other side of the country. And then you keep sort of being moved on, either because you, you, you get fed up and change jobs or because your boss says, hey, you know, we could do with somebody at our office in Florida. Do you want to go down there for a bit? So you, you were sort of thrown in at the deep end into environments where you literally know nobody. And of course, this is the big problem with the big cities of our modern world is, is they are kind of social deserts, really. If you don't know anybody, you're kind of left high and dry because you don't know where to go to meet people. The only place you know is the office. You, know, you don't necessarily want to spend all day with these people in your office and then have to spend all, all evening and weekend with them as well. But, you know, you end up with this sort of age group who until they find their feet in that local community, which can take many years to do, I suppose, as we all know who, who, who've been in that situation, you know, you have this sort of trough of loneliness which you have to, to work through. And it's, it, it's kind of not good for the person. It's not good for the employer because a lonely person who gets depressed isn't going to be a good worker at their desk for you from Monday to Friday. So I'm kind of surprised that, employers really haven't made bigger efforts to kind of try and bed their, their new recruits in in this kind of way. I mean, maybe the Silicon Valley people have been more successful at this, perhaps because they themselves have all been that age group. So they kind of realize what the problem is. But yeah, I know it's a big problem. Of course, the other end of life, then you get the same problem because what happens there is as your friends move away or worse still die off, 
you just don't have the motivation or the energy anymore to go out to places where you might meet new friends to fill those empty slots. So you tend to find people's social networks sort of shrink once they're past the 70 mark and it gets worse and worse. You sort of eventually end up sort of back where you started, knowing only a couple of people immediately close to you, as it were. And of course, that just increases the levels of depression and the susceptibility to diseases of all kinds at, at that end. And then the third group, which you've mentioned, is the sort of young mums stuck at home, particularly with first babies, I think, because you obviously, first baby is is a bit of a trauma for all of us of both sexes here it's uh, this sort of how do you do how do you do this kind of stuff what do you what, what do you do when the baby cries uh, you get a bit more experience you get a bit more laid back with dealing with those kind of things but that first baby kind of you end up being locked in at home unable to go out so much because obviously the babies are very demanding things in their first couple of years and require a lot of attention from you and they're exhausting so you kind of don't even feel like going out even if you've got the opportunity and and, you know the knock-on consequences of that if you are not living in your home community where you're surrounded by you know mothers and mothers-in-law and sisters and cousins who sort of come around and help you out and, and and have a coffee with you you know, if you're on your own and your partner's off out at work uh, all day, it's a, it's a long, lonely furrow that you're plowing there. And of course, you know, it increases the risk of depression and, and, and all these other kinds of psychological sort of ill states, as they say. Yeah. And of course, uh, at least in the States, uh, this kind of phenomenon of the people who move away from their home community is principally a fact for the university graduate crowd, yes, not yeah. necessarily for everybody else. And yeah. in the U.S., your typical non-college grad still lives within 20 minutes drive of their mother. <laughs> this is true. And I think that's important. Yes, no. That's important to note. Yeah. This is a class-based thing. Yeah. And I think you realize how difficult childcare in those first, particularly that first year of, of, of the baby's life, how much more difficult it is for people who've moved away from home and don't have the support of their kind of home family and home community. I think they struggle much more, even if they don't suffer from loneliness and depression. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting thing to think about and how we organize our society. We're probably not doing a very good job of increasing human well-being. We're not paying that much attention to it, as you you point out. I think that's a, a lot of the problem. Of course, our uh, evolutionary history, we've spent most of it in very, very small, fairly stable communities, not to say that people didn't move. After all, the great majority of the citizens of the United States uh, have their origins from people who up sticks and cross the Atlantic <laughs> in search of a better life, as they say. Uh, you know, once you've got established somewhere, you, you, you even then you would end up in a fairly small quite close-knit community, which provides you with a lot of support in in all sorts of psychological and social respects that are are very important to the way we deal with with life in general. You know, our success as a species owes its origins to the extent to which we've been able to form those kind of 
self-help communities. Yeah, at some level, the human superpower is cooperation at various scales. Indeed right? so, indeed so. Let's change topics a little bit. You quote uh, some work from John, let me get his name right, Cacciapo, about claims that neuromodulators are an important aspect of these kinds of things and may suggest an evolutionary dimension, you know, that loneliness has got some attributes with our with our genes, essentially. And you talk about some specific neuromodulators, and you even have some specific views contrary to popular culture on our good friend oxytocin. Tell us a little bit about your thinking with respect to uh, neuromodulators, friendship, loneliness, and all that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the key point about what John Kachepa was saying was simply that feelings of loneliness are kind of an evolutionary alarm bell, really. Something's not going well in your social life, get out there and do something about it. That rather than being itself a condition or disease, if you like, it's really just a, a, a signal from from your bodily system to say, things are not good in here. <laughs> we we need some bol- bolstering. So get out and, and, and meet some folk. And in that sense, you know, it's a, it's, it's a signal of the fact that all sorts of other things are going on that lead into these various psychological illnesses or conditions, depression and so on, or, or into indeed physical illnesses. And one reason for the physical side effect is that loneliness and depression sort of negatively affect your immune system. So the body is not so good at... Uh, seeking and destroying all the sort of viruses and bacteria and whatnot that the external world insists on throwing at us all the time. And, and, you know, the immune system is clearly there to protect us from those. Well, if your immune system is suppressed because you're depressed, because you're lonely, then, then, you know, you're going to suffer much more from all these many diseases from sort of irritating winter colds right through to the serious stuff as a result. And I think, you know, kind of that makes a lot of sense from, from from an evolutionary point of view. Now, where were we going on the second point? Yeah, the neuromodulators. And how does that play into the story? You know, the serotonin, beta endorphin, dopamine, that, that, you know, that stuff. <laughs> I mean, it, it actually turns out that there are some quite important differences in how the brain is organized and the size of different bits of the brain between people who are naturally social isolates, who who are commonly lonely as a result, and people who are very intensely social. So there is something that goes, and this appears to be related to some aspects of our genetics as well. So it's not entirely a consequence of the environment and experiences you have. There is a a genetic component to that. And part of that may relate to this, this hasn't been, this connection hasn't been kind of worked out exactly, but it may well relate to the role of some of the key neuromodulators in this whole business of friendship versus loneliness. Now, there's been a kind of media frenzy and to some extent a research frenzy over this little neuropeptide, oxytocin. Oxytocin is very interesting because it actually is very ancient. It evolved in fish to maintain water balance within the body so the body didn't sort of get completely swamped with all the water coming in seeping in from outside and, it, and then it got sort of switched into the reverse pattern 
with the evolution of mammals because our problem once once the fish if you like colonized the land they they had the reverse problem of trying to keep the water in rather than it being sort of seeped out with with the drying environment on on land and so we all have it and it serves these very important functions of helping to modulate the uh, the body's fluid balance if you like um but it it was co-opted by mammals in particular for use in in mother uh, infant interactions because obviously lactation involves a huge amount of pressure on the the, the water content of the body as it were you have to uh, you know milk is 95% water basically so this this maintaining water balance while you're lactation then becomes very important and, and oxytocin's tied up with that and it's sort of being co-opted as a as a what's come in popular parlance to be referred to as the love hormone because it seems to to prompt these very positive um, maternal feelings of of love for one's offspring as a result of 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 giving milk to babies and a lot of uh, kind of uh, interest emerged as in as to whether this was actually the kind of core chemical involved in generally social relationships among obviously mammals in general but but humans in particular and it spawned a huge amount of interest not always terribly well thought out experiments i'm afraid in some cases but um it's true that that it does have work in the way i've suggested it's very important in mother infant relationships and it it's works in terms of romantic relationships which you might argue are kind of indirectly related to each other for the obvious reasons that you can't have babies without having romantic relationships first but in terms of what kind of makes the social world go round uh, at least in primates it appears to be another and in fact much more powerful neuropeptide in the brain the endorphin system particularly the beta endorphins and these appear to kind of underpin the building of friendships essentially now endorphins like many other chemicals they're neurotransmitters in the brain they seem to be involved in many different functions but the beta endorphins in particular seem to be involved with the pain system so they are extremely good analgesics in fact weight for weight beta endorphins are 30 times more powerful as analgesics than morphine is you know so the short answer here is or the short lesson is don't take all this artificial stuff just get your own morphine your own endorphins go far far better and they make you feel good yeah. you know and how do we do that well in terms of our sort of primate ancestry it, the the endorphin system is triggered by physical contact so stroking and patting and cuddling and so on this is just primate grooming so when you see monkeys in the zoo leaping through each other's fur and picking bits out what they're actually doing is triggering the endorphin system in the brain through a fairly complicated but unique neural system that only responds to light slow stroking and we have that neural system we can trigger it with stroking and 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 cuddling and so on in the way we do and of course that's why that system is still embedded in very close relationships but it it kind of doesn't work for large numbers of people at the same time because you can only cuddle one person at a time i'm always inclined to uh 
suggest if you don't believe me try um uh, cuddling two people in the back row of the the, the cinema when we're allowed to go back to the cinemas again <laughs> and i i would hazard the guess that within about five minutes one will have left in a huff <laughs> i'd be rather cross uh, i don't know if i i don't know if my wife would think about me trying that experiment but uh, we'll see if the opportunity ever arises <laughs> yes Yes. So, and that's because you're not paying attention to them. And there's something very intimate about physical touch that involves real focused attention and, if you like, meaning in the relationship. And of course, that's not what you want for kind of bonding bigger groups. So, what we've found historically is a number of ways of triggering the same neural system, at least in at the brain end, and, and triggering the release of endorphins in the brain to create this sense of calmness and relaxation and trustingness and happiness that the endorphins give us and, and make us feel bonded to the people we're doing these activities with. And these activities have probably in the following order been co-opted by our ancestors that were and now form a core part of our social toolkit. And they are laughter, singing, singing without words, probably originally, um, dancing, playing of music, obviously, feasting, eating and drinking alcohol together, telling emotional sob stories, and many of the rituals of religion. Uh, all of these we've been able to show trigger the endorphin system. They make you feel much more bonded to the people you do them with. And they have the advantage because you don't physically have to touch the other person. It gets over that intimacy hump, as it were, which means you can bond with many individuals simultaneously and of course you know if you're doing things like singing or I, I keep suggesting somebody tries to see how many people you can get in a line dance uh, together but the synchrony of the behavior that you get in those sort of contexts means that you can kind of create this sense of community with very very large numbers of individuals we've done it with up to 200 people in a choir, <laughs> it works extremely well. Choirs of 200 get more bonded by singing together than choirs of 20 do, for example. So there are sort of Very um, interesting. booster effects that come, come out of it. But what seems to be important in there is the synchrony of these behaviors. And if you think about a lot of these activities that I've mentioned, most of them are highly synchronized. So when we laugh, we laugh in synchrony with each other. When we dance, obviously we dance in synchrony. When we sing, of course we sing in synchrony. Many of the rituals of religion, you know, you stand and kneel and sit and cross yourself or whatever it is that you do in your religion all at the same time. And it's that's, that somehow that ramps up the endorphin output. We don't really understand why it does that, but we get it from exercise. If you go jogging with people, a, you're likely to be running in synchrony with them, so you can hear that from the footfall being coordinated between people. That seems to ramp up the endorphin effect compared to if you went on your own. So you're getting an extra boost, as it were, from, from the exercise. So the message is don't go jogging on your own. Go with a friend. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I really like this list. You know, I think of like laughter, singing, dancing, uh, playing of music, drinking alcohol, feasting. It all fits in the bucket of conviviality, essentially, right? The, the, all the good stuff in life. Yeah, indeed so. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, this is why we do those particular activities in social contexts. You know, if we want to engage with people, what we do is we 
try and engineer it so that we can do one or other of these activities or several of them at the same time. I love it. Even alcohol. Think about clinking the mugs and bottoms up together, right? Yes, yes, absolutely so. And if you think about when we, I mean, okay, you know, if you sort of grab a sandwich on on the street and eat it on your own, that's one thing, uh, satisfies your hunger maybe. But if we sit down to a social meal, a social dinner with friends or with people we want to get to know, Everything is very ritualized so that it we do things at the same time. The, the courses come at the same time, as it were, and provide sort of moments of, of synchrony through, through, through the meal. We will engage in uh, the odd toast, maybe. So again, somebody is the master of ceremonies there is regulating the drinking that you do, so you all do it at the same time. Somebody perhaps tells stories or uh, um, tells jokes and makes us laugh, and we all laugh together or we all sob together. You know, these are the secrets of a, a, a good social interaction and a good social life, really. So, um, you know, perhaps it's not surprising that they're the ones we we use, and we don't sit in silence with each other. <laughs> Although, of course, today we're more likely to sit in silence and uh, be typing angrily into Facebook, right? <laughs> Asynchronously. I, I, you, know. uh, you may say so. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, truthfully, I'm currently honest. That's part of the problem, I think, is that, you know, we, we spend so much time sitting in, our, in isolation in our rooms at the end of a, a, a keyboard where we don't, at the same time, have the social controls that would normally prevent us flying off the handle. So, you know, if somebody was kind of in a conversation, was uh, said something that mildly outraged you, you would either sort of sort it out with them and, and, and have a discussion about it and come to some mutual agreement or somebody tell a joke and break break the tension. But there you are in your, uh, the loneliness of your room. You hit the keyboard and say things which in a social context you would never do because you would pick up the kind of negative vibes that start to spill out as you start to say something to express your outrage at whatever's just been said. You would pick up these vibes that not everybody's happy with what you're saying. So you kind of backtrack and modulate what you have to say. And I, I, this is really the key to social life is this ability to kind of see the world from somebody else's point of view and find some kind of compromise between your opposing views. So it's all the skills of diplomacy, actually, which uh, you know, conspicuously not there in diplomatic circles very often, but there we go. And, and you know, they're, they're what makes social life at the level of the humble individual work because, you know, if you've got 100 people in a community, you've got 100 different views, and that community would very quickly sort of fracture and, and disperse. And the only way you can hold it in place and keep the community going as a community and therefore doing its job for us is by being able to exercise self-restraint and uh, so on and, and, and talk people around and use diplomatic ways of doing things to maintain the stability of the 
relationships among the individuals. Yeah, that's a very good point. Let's move on to another topic. When I try to get my head around a body of science, one of the things I like to look for is conservation laws. And one that seemed to keep popping up throughout the book, of course, it's not as rigorous as, say, the physical conservation of energy or something like that, is time. And that time seems to have a conservation law-like element in the domain of friends and friend-like relationships. Uh, talk, talk to us a little bit. About, you must have brought it up 20 different times in the book. It was a theme that was subtly woven throughout. Uh, time is the secret of the universe. You know, contrary to Douglas Adams's 49 or whatever it was in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's actually time. Einstein was right all along. And that's simply a consequence of the fact that these bonding mechanisms we use are very time dependent and we have to keep repeating them in order to maintain the quality of of any relationship we do. So in other words, to create a friendship, you have to invest a lot of time in it, at least at the beginning, to sort of get it up and running, as it were. And then once it's up and running, you have to keep investing in order to maintain it at that level. So friendships are very expensive. And indeed, we devote something like 20% of our entire waking day to social activities. Uh, uh, You know, this is non-trivial stuff. We're sort of servicing our relationships and maintaining um, their quality so that they will be ready to function in the way we need them to function. When we need help, the people that we've built these relationships with really will come to our aid. One of my challenges, again, if you don't believe me, is just go out and try it. You know, <laughs> go out into the street to the first stranger when we're allowed to do these things again, the first stranger on the street and throw your arms around him or her and say, I need a hug. My, my life's fallen apart. Come and help me. I'll bet you anything you like that their response will be to get their phone out and call the ambulance or the police, one of the two. <laughs> Whereas if you do that to your handful of shoulders to cry on friends, those four or five people that you know are very meaningful to you, of course they will immediately drop everything and, uh, and do what's required. And, and this really highlights the fact that it is no good going to somebody and asking for their support and, and, and so on after the event, the best you're going to do is, you know, them demanding some payment for, for, for putting themselves out and, and, and so on. Of course, that's why we pay doctors and psychiatrists under these circumstances. If you wanted instant support and help, you have to set these friendships up well ahead of need. And if you're very lucky, you may never need them. It's like an insurance policy. It's, it's money well spent. And of course, at least with friendships, we we get some fun on the way. But believe me, if the situation does arise and you really need that kind of emotional and and social and maybe financial help, those friendships are a godsend. They're what will keep you going, as it were, through the the dark patches out into the sunlight on the other side of the, uh, the tunnel. And that's very expensive to do. We, we actually devote, of that 20% of the day that, that we spend in social inter- interaction, which is something in the order of about three, three and a half hours a day, one way and another. That's not to say conversations with people at work necessarily, unless they happen to be friends of ours or we're having a casual chat with them. But 40% of that time is given to our five 
core shoulders to cry on friends. So we really heavily invest very, very heavily in them. Then we give another 20% of that three and a half hours to um, the next 10 people that make up this sort of what's called the sympathy group layer of about 12 to 15 people that are very meaningful to us. So 60% of our total social effort and time and, and emotional capital is given to just 15 people. Uh, the rest of the people in our extended social circle get, on average, about 30 seconds a day, I think I calculated it out. Of. But they don't need so much out there. <laughs> yeah, you get a little text message now. Just, right. fine. Just a, a reminder, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, you know, I, one of the things I did find interesting, and again, when looking at you know science, where do you get information from? While these population numbers work for large populations, there's considerable individual difference based on all kinds of things. And that actually provides an interesting clue. And so, for instance, you guys found that extroverts have more friends than introverts, but they spend less time per friend. Conservation law. Absolutely so. I mean, yes, these kind of standard numbers we come up with, the 5 and the 15, the 150, what's known as Dunbar's number, are extremely constant. You, you see them in every data set you care to look at, almost no matter how it's it's obtained. But built around that is a lot of individual variations. So let's say Dunbar's number of 150 people, which is your extended social network, the total list of all the people, family and friends, that are meaningful to you in terms of their relationships, that can vary between maybe 100 and 250. Depends on age, it depends on sex, it depends on personality. All these things sort of factor into it and, and create a lot of variability. And indeed, as you mentioned, you know, extroverts tend to be at the sort of top end of that. They'll, they'll have maybe 200 to 250 people in their, their Dunbar circle, whereas uh, introverts will perhaps be down to 100. And we think the reason basically is that introverts are kind of risk averse. In other words, they would rather have fewer friends so that they can give each of them more time to make sure that that friendship really works as a friendship. Whereas extroverts are kind of trading on their social confidence to be able to ride out rejections. So if they, you know, go and beg a favor from Susan and Susan says, no way, you never paid me back last time. You know, they're responsibly just to shrug their shoulders and go on to James and see see what they can get get them to do. It, it's just two two equally good ways, really, of solving the same problem. Uh, how do you ensure you you will always have people to support you? But it does mean that introverts' friendships and family relationships tend to be warmer and more emotionally intense than those of extroverts. It seems. And we can pick these up even in things like, you know, the frequencies with which people telephone each other, uh, uh, as well as in their ratings of how emotionally close they feel to their individual friends and family. Yeah, I like the way you guys uh, were able to use and, and marshal a lot of what we might call social physics type data, you know, from lots of different modalities, phone call lengths, text message patterning, etc. It's kind of interesting that we're able to do that now. Oh, it's, it's the, the last no more than 10 years, but really perhaps even only the last five years, the capacity to mine these kind of data 
has proved to be enormously beneficial for our understanding of how things work. Because prior to that, we had to ask people to make lists. When we first started doing this stuff, only 15 years ago, you know, we had to ask people to sit down with a very big sheet of paper and say, write out all the people you have meaningful relationships with, all 150 of them, or maybe 250 of them. And we often ended up with not a few people being very, very cross. I remember one of our research assistants <laughs> reporting back that one of his aunties, I think it was, had, had completed one of these forms for us. And when she sent it back, pinned to the top of it was a little note which said, do not ever ask me to do anything like this ever again. <laughs> because it probably took <laughs> several evenings of, of her busy time to actually do it. So to all of them, uh, we're very grateful. But um, thankfully, now we can collect data much more easily and faster through using telephone call databases or things like sometimes Facebook. Um, uh, there are publicly available Facebook data sets, which, which are old now, but um, were made available by Facebook a very long time ago. And again, you know, with things like the telephone databases, we have no idea what's being said in the, the, the phone calls, of course, because that's not recorded. All, all we have is the bill listings, if you like of who called who and for how long and that that's that's as much as we know but out of that you can see very beautifully these very consistent patterns in terms of how frequently people contact each other and uh, how many people are in their address book if you like and in, what's interesting out of that is that actually all these different ways of contacting people whether it's texting or phoning or Facebook or email or face-to-face, uh, -face, the frequencies with which people contact the individuals in their different social layers of their network are virtually identical. In other words, we kind of use these new digital means of communication exactly in the same way as we use face-to-face -face contact. So it'll, you know, have, with the advantage of that we can contact the person even when they're not physically present. It's quite interesting. In fact, uh, you're one of the proponents of the social brain hypothesis that, again, may provide a unifying lens for why all these different modalities would show similar clustering patterns. And in fact, you reference work and you did some of the work yourself, not only on humans, but on other social mammals. And they've been able to derive some similar dynamics, or we might even say regularities based on, you know, the attributes of the animals and how they interact and their brains. Tell us a little bit about the uh, social brain hypothesis. This is really interesting stuff. Yeah. So the social brain hypothesis actually originally uh, came or was proposed as an explanation for why monkeys and apes have much bigger brains than any of the other species of animals that share the planet with us. And in terms of brain size for body weight, you know, sort of <laughs> much bigger brains than even whales and, and, and elephants and all those uh, large-bodied animals with, with big brains have. But it turns out that in monkeys and apes, but not for any other group of or major group of birds or, or mammals, there's a very nice relationship between the size of a species brain and the size of its social group. So species that live in big social groups have big brains, or in particular, it's the kind of neocortex primarily, which is the, the wrinkly 
surface bit of our brain. It's only a, a few millimeters deep, in fact. It's a huge sheet wrapped around this small inner core of sort of old mammalian brain. The inner core does all the stuff that keeps body and soul together for you. The, the neocortex on the, the, the surface is where all the clever stuff gets done. A large chunk of that is devoted to managing your relationships. So it's partly memory, but it's also actually all the computation you have to do to figure out why Jemima behaved in this particular way, what were her intentions, and what are the consequences of that? How should you respond? And what are the implications for the way she's behaved for the other members of her social network and the other members of your social network. So what makes the social world of monkeys snakes complicated is that they are in a much more complex social environment where they're calculating the knock-on consequences for other members of the group of what you do with another person. So it's a sort of third-party consequences that have to be figured out and in order to keep the group sort of bonded and, and together and rather than sort of dispersing. So that was sort of shown with comparative data. Beginning about 10 years ago, we started looking at individuals in brain scanning machines and showed that uh, this relationship, this social brain relationship, applied even within species between individuals. So people who have Small social circles, small number of friends tend to have a uh, smaller chunks of the bits of the neocortex that are particularly important in managing relationships. And this is a sort of rather a large neural circuit, sort of consists of two components. One is known as the mentalizing circuit because it's involved in you imagining what somebody else is thinking. And the other is is what's known as the default mode neural network, which is largely concerned with uh, managing your emotions and and uh, those kind of cues, as it were. So it's the way these are, are then put together that allow you to handle complex relationships with other individuals that seems to underlie the social brain effect. It's, it's Although originally it came out of just looking at the whole brain as a, as a whole. In fact, it turns out to be underpinned by a very discreet component of the brain, but a component which is actually, in a, particularly in our case, extremely large. It, it occupies a, a very big chunk of the total brain volume, especially of the, of the neocortex. So here, in, in fact, rather nicely built in there is the fact that if you look at the nature of monkey and ape, relationships, how they build their friendships. It, it's based on what psychologists would call a um, dual process mechanism. So it has two components which work in tandem with each other, um, but are very different and are based in different parts of the brain. One is a kind of raw feels, the emotional content of the relationship. And the other is the sort of more conscious cognitive part of the relationship where you are evaluating an individual as an individual and, and evaluating their behavior, whereas the emotional component is just the sense of warmth you have, which you can't often put in words, just feel attracted to and very warm towards this particular person. And these com two components uh, are there with us, and they perhaps reflect the difference between the mentalizing and default mode neural networks and explain why the two 
appear in, uh, to be important in this context. I just wanted to clarify for the audience that when you're talking about the metalizing circuits and networks, another term that is often used for that kind of cognition is theory of mind. Are they, are they pretty much similar concepts? Yes, and, and a third term that often appears in this context is mind reading, which perhaps is you know easier to, to comprehend more straightforwardly. It's, in other words, your capacity to read somebody else's mind. So theory of mind is the term invented by philosophers who clearly always like to confuse everybody by using inscrutable terminology. <laughs> but the logic of it kind of makes sense. In other words, it was that you had a theory of somebody else's mind is what, what they had in mind when they called it theory of mind. So it's the ability to understand what's going on in somebody else's mind. Actually, that's I mean, although that's a kind of major Rubicon, really, which only we and maybe the great apes, the orangutans, chimpanzees, and, and gorillas, share. None of the other animals and birds seem to be able to to do this kind of stuff. This theory of mind of reading some one other person's mind is actually, by our standards, very small beer indeed. And it's um, capacity that children develop at about the age of five and become pretty competent at it, as competent as adults by the time they're, they're, certainly by the time they're six. But humans, as they develop from that age into adults, the capacity becomes larger and larger scale, so that we can factor more and more minds in at the same time. And what adult, normal adult humans seem to be able to do is to handle five people's mind states at the same time. Now, of course, one of those is yours, right? So because you have to be imagining that somebody else is imagining something. But it means that you can handle four other people's mind states simultaneously. Um, that's a, a, a hugely costly thing to do in terms of neural processing, the computing capacity of the brain. But it also perhaps explains why conversations never get beyond four. So four seems to be the absolute upper limit of conversation sizes, the number of people you can have in a conversation at any one time. If, if you get a fifth person in a conversation, it will break up very, very quickly into two conversations. We seem unable to do more of that. And I kind of, I, I, it's a slight joke, really, if you like, rather than a necessarily something we know for some, but I, I kind of have this vision that the reason it's set at four is that, um, you know, when we're having an interesting conversation, it's always about somebody else who's not there. And that's the fifth mind <laughs> that we're, we're speculating. <laughs> <laughs> this comes out very nicely if you look at a good dramatist or perhaps a good novelist, actually. But so we've done it with dramatists. We've done it in films, uh, contemporary films, and we've done it in Shakespeare's plays. They never have more than four people having a speaking part at any one time. So if you look at Shakespeare's plays, it's always and only ever a maximum of four people because what's clearly sitting at the back of Shakespeare's mind intuitively, um, you know, it was just his skill as an observer of humans to appreciate this, is the audience has to contend with the mind states on the stage and that the audience is using up or the audience member is using up the first mind reading level, as it were, and they can manage five, so that just leaves four slots on the stage. And Shakespeare's absolutely rigorous about this. And in fact, if 
if the characters on the stage are discussing somebody else's mind state who's not on the stage but somewhere else, they're speculating on uh, Ophelia's uh, mind state when she threw herself into the stream in, in, in Hamlet or whatever it may be, Shakespeare reduces the number of people on the stage in the conversation to three. So he's clued in on this. It's just amazing. But it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, there are these natural limits and it's a consequence of the fact that the computing power needed to handle, because what you're doing actually is creating a virtual world in your own mind, a kind of model of the world out there. You're modeling somebody else's mind, you know, by creating avatars in, inside your own mind. And this is hugely computationally expensive for the brain. And of course, you know, it's perfectly possible to have a brain that's so enormous that we could, you know, sort of keep the in, uh, mind states of the entire population of the United States going simultaneously. But the brain size you'd have to have to do that would be the size of Jupiter, probably. <laughs> so there are practical limitations. And I, I hesitate to say this, but half the half the population may have something very definite to say about the size of babies' heads <laughs> when they're giving birth, which is really what the limitation is. And it's the, yeah, the ultimate constraint is, you know, what given our body sizes, we as a, a species can actually give birth to. Um, and the limiting size of the, the baby at birth for all mammals is the size of the brain. Yeah, size of the birth canal, the pelvis and the brain. So clearly one of the serious constraints in evolution. Well, it's about that time. Let's move on to the topic. If I'm going to talk to Robin Dunbar, I certainly got to talk about the Dunbar number. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of how you came to derive it. Well, this was all, as is often the case in science, actually, a complete accident, a bit of serendipity here. I, I was trying to solve a very trivial problem to do with primate behavior, to do with grooming, actually. And it occurred to me that the social brain hypothesis, although it, it was in a slightly different form, which had just been proposed at the time by somebody else, this, this relationship between the fact that primates have bigger brains than other species is because they live in much more complex societies and they just need a bigger computer to handle all the information. It occurred to me if that's true, then... Uh, it should be the case that species group sizes correlate with their brain sizes. So got the data out of uh, the, the journals and put them on a graph, and sure enough, they did. And this probably was sort of about uh, three o'clock in the morning after several beers struggling with all this stuff. I made the absurd, uh, or had the absurd thought that, you know, well, well where do humans uh, fit into this? So since we know know how big the human brain is let's plug them into the regression equation for this graph and, and see where humans would lie and what that predicted was a group size of about 150 and i have to say i thought this was rather too small probably by several orders of magnitude given that we live in huge conurbations uh, these days but I thought, well, you know, we've lived most of our evolutionary history in very, very small scale hunter-gatherer type societies. Let's see what size of uh, communities um, these small scale traditional societies live in. And um, 
one of the problems with that was not knowing really what the correct community type to choose in humans um, that would be equivalent to groups in monkeys and apes because the problem with humans but it turns out this is also true of monkeys and apes in fact but humans very obviously live in sort of this highly layered form of social system where you have small groups embedded within bigger groups with embedded within yet bigger groups so families embedded in extended families who perhaps live together in a, a hunting camp perhaps and then the members of the hunting camp gather together into community and the community communities gather together into a tribe so you've got this sort of stacked hierarchical form of organization so so what i actually did was collect data on hunter-gatherer societies from around the world for all the data on sizes of the different grouping layers that they had and asked well which one do any of these correspond to this figure of 150 and it turned out to be community size community is the sort of doesn't really exist on the ground. It only exists in people's minds because what you see on the ground is these hunting camps. But if you look at you know, which hunting camps meet up with which hunting camps from time to time and, and do each other favours and all these kind of things, then out of that emerges this sense of a community. And it's this grouping, typically somewhere between about 100 and 200 people, so sort of slotted very nicely around this figure of 150 Later, what we've done is looked at people's um, social networks to see how many people they know. And, and, and we've had a look at some other examples. So village sizes in medieval times in England. Some other people have looked at the size of essentially villages, grazing associations in the Alps, the Italian Alps over sort of ooh, about eight centuries, I think, from about the 1200s to, to, to the late uh, 19th century. And you just see this number coming up all the time. It's a sort of fundamental size, group size in the military, for example. It's usually known as a company in most armies. Um, you can see there, if you look up the uh, army manual, American army manual, there it is specified that uh, it'll be somewhere between uh, probably about 150 and 180 uh, people in size. It's the sort of platoons, the, the three or four platoons that will be involved, plus the sort of ancillary officers and, 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 and what have you and signals people that make up the company. That's exactly the kind of size. And you see it all around the world there. British Army is a bit smaller, where um, about typically about 120, I think, in a company. The US about 180. The Australians about 150. So they're all in this kind of ballpark again. We think that's because that's the limit on the size of group you can create a community out of. So that's why you have this sense of brotherly bondedness among the military. They work very hard at creating this sense of community at the level of the company. And anybody who's been in the military will tell you the big needle matches in sports are not between the different regiments. They're between the companies of the same regiment. That's <laughs> that sense of intense kind of brotherhood that, that uh, military training really works very hard to create. So it's just a very distinct kind of grouping, and it, it corresponds exactly really to the size of the number of people that you have in your social network, that you have meaningful relationships with. And, and it, it got so christened as Dunbar's number on 
Facebook, I believe. <laughs> I've never seen the original, but I've had several people say that that was true. But um, it's, it's since been adopted as, as the, the term for it. But technically speaking, it's actually Dunbar's numbers. It should be because, of course, this 150 is simply one in several stacked layers that all of these kind of groupings demonstrate very nicely. So if you think of, again, the army, you know, you've got sections uh, within platoons, platoons within companies. They're very similar to the layers you have in your social network. You've got your shoulders to cry on friends at about four or five, uh, which, of course, is, you know, your tent tent group in the military within the section. You've got your four-man tent uh, cooking and uh, eating and sleeping together there at the base. And your shoulders to ground friends are set within a sympathy group of about 12 to 15 who are set within a kind of social group of about 50 who in turn are set within your total social network of 150. And beyond that, you know, there are several more layers. So the next one out. Yeah, let's, well, let's dig into this. this. Of all the things in the book, this was, to me, the biggest eye-opener. You know, I've I heard of Dunbar number and read about, you know, things like Hutterites. It actually came up in a conversation yesterday. Hutterites and Dunbar's number right. and Christmas card lists and such. But this idea of concentric circles at a scale of three was kind of new to me. And I really like that part of the book. And, you know, it really produced a lot of thoughts. For instance, in the military, in the U.S. military, they actually do have a unit of, of about four called the, the fire team, which is half of a squad. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, you know, that, that number four or four to five is your classic special forces unit, your SEALs. Exactly. Four is the SEAL team, right? That's right. Two twos. They used buddies, and then they produced two sets of buddies. As uh, you do not want to run into four goddamn seals, I can tell you that. Not unless you got a, a flamethrower and a tank. Right? Even then, you'll probably lose. <laughs> exactly, yes. and it's exactly the same number in the SAS, the British equivalent, the Special Air Service. Four is the fire team, as it were, and that's uh, you know that this kind of makes sense because these guys do most of what they do on their own, behind enemy lines. So the last thing you want out there is members of a fire team who are just going to say, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm off for a coffee, <laughs> right in the middle of some crisis. You, you, you got, you've got to stick to each other's butts like glue. And the only way you'll do that is if you kind of live, literally live and die day by day uh, in your training together and build up such an intense friendship that you have these kind of shoulders to cry on friendships as we would recognize them in civilian life. And that in turn limits the size of what's possible for those kind of groupings to about four or five. You simply couldn't have more people and have the same kind of intensity where guys will just literally, you know, stand, do a Custer's last stand together as it were, come what may. And those guys will definitely do that. The other thing you pointed out, and I think is very, very interesting, is essentially all the team sports vary in size between 5 and 15. Yes. Uh, I can't think of any sport, maybe uh, Afghani polo or something, where they uh, use a dead goat instead of a ball. I think that's a little bit bigger. But most of the sports that we know of are between 5 and 15. Yeah, well, I, most of the team sports are actually between 11 and, uh, and about 15. I think a basketball is the big anomaly there. Yes. I mean, that's a very, very exciting sport at five. But that That's dictated by the size of the court as much as anything else. 
and the size of the goal. Uh, you you have to adjust those those uh, you know accordingly, if you like. But certainly, you know, football, soccer, hockey, field hockey, ice hockey, yeah, lacrosse, rugby. You know, go down the list. Baseball. They're all up at that fifteen. What's interesting about most of those is they subdivide the twelve to fifteen into two parts. So you actually have two separate games going on. You've got the forwards and you've got the backs <laughs> operating basically two kinds of games on the field. And that's a reflection, I think, of the fact that in order for these game team games to work, you really have to be able to think your way into the mind of your co-players, as it were. So you have to know that when Jim is going to lob the ball, Without even having to look at him, you know when he's going to do it and you know exactly where he's going to put it because you understand how his mind ticks so well so that you're there to receive receive the pass when it comes. You know, there's a limit on, on the number of people you can really have that kind of deep mind reading sense with. So, you know, you couldn't do it with 15. <laughs> you have to uh, subdivide the 15 into at least two two separate groups, the forwards and the backs, and they basically play completely separate games uh, with with the other half of the <laughs> opposing team. The interesting one actually is, uh, of course, we have five-a-side soccer. Again, it's played on a small court usually, but there is an entire league, and I, I, it started in Denmark, I think, originally, of three-team soccer. So you have three teams on the field, but they that sounds pretty nutty. How the hell do you do that? Do you have three goals? You have three goals. You have a hexagonal shape pitch, and that would be kind of you, interesting. You, the way you win, uh, the winner is the people who have the fewest goals scored against them, not not the people who score the most goals. <laughs> um, quite interesting. You have three quarters, if you like, uh, in terms of playing time. So the the game is divided into three sections, time sections, but they've they discovered when they did this that it was five was really the limit. If you had fewer than five in each team, people ended up kind of having to run about too much. And if you had many more than five, so they tried it with eight and 15, I think, no, eight and uh, 10 at one stage when they were developing this. Everybody gets in everybody's way because there's just too many people on the pitch. So they've sort of evolved this natural thing of, of, of three teams of five. It's quite fun to watch. It's quite interesting. You get a lot of strategy going on. Yeah, some game theory dynamics <laughs> going on too, right? <laughs> two against one, right? It's going to be a rotating series of two against one. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, interesting. I, yeah, and the Americans have, a, in Texas in particular, they have a seven-man American football game that's played by the smaller rural high schools that oh, couldn't right. efficiently uh, field the the full 11 person right. team and that's also a very good game uh, so you know it seems like you can have good games in in a in a little bit broader range but let's go back to friendship now let's talk about these I kind of thought about them in a Tolkienish fashion, the Rings of Dunbar that kind of start out we'll talk about 1.5 later but let's start back in the context of friendship. 5, 15, 50, 150. You call them the support group at 5, the sympathy group at 15. What do we think about the 50 and the 150? Well, the, the 50 we sometimes call the affinity group because I tend to think of these, and of course the 150 is your essentially your entire social network, all the people you currently feel you have meaningful relationships with. I, I tend to think of these uh, taking a leaf out of your party animal 
uh, youth here tend to think of these in terms of what you do with them and your your inner core of five are really as I've said already your support group they provide you with emotional support and so on but they're your intimate or more intimate social partners if you're going to have a very kind of intimate dinner maybe you you, you would have your support group there as the 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 dinner but uh, the 15 is really your probably your core general social group so you know if you were going to make up a party to go to the theater or you just wanted somebody to go out for a walk through the mountains uh, and just kind of matter too much who it is um, you would kind of see who in that extended group of 15 because you know quite a few of these are going to be children making up the slots in there who are sort of tagging along with their parents it's the parents that that, that are the core members of your friendship group that you're, you're going for. But that 15 group is your sort of regular social partners. Your 50 group is what I call your yard barbecue party group. So if you decide to have a bit of a bash one weekend in the year for your birthday and you do a big barbecue in, 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 in the garden or, or wherever, it would be that group you, you tend to go for. They're your sort of party friends, I guess you might call them. And then finally, your 150 is what I call your uh, bar mitzvah, weddings and funeral group. So these are the ones that will turn up for the one in a lifetime big events. You know, I mean, you may not know about much about them when they turn up to your funeral, but, you know, they will turn up. That's a mark of their esteem of you. That's interesting. Yeah, as I think back, you know, the parties, you know, a good party, typically 40, 50, yeah. 60 people in that That's range. Right. It's interesting. I think the other interesting one, to, at least for Americans, think about it's 150. It's kind of like your Christmas card list. Yeah, yes. This is a, a, an alien concept we discovered to Americans on the whole Christmas cards, but it was something. Really? No. Really? No. A lot of them do it. I'm not. I'm not. And we used to, but my daughter, amazingly enough, still oh is. My, my parents, my mother was an assiduous Christmas card person, and thinking through her list, you know, it was a big thing she did all fall. All right, who do I scratch off the list? Who has pissed me off? Who do I add? Right? Yeah. It's quite funny. She'd even ask our opinion. Should I scratch? Blah blah. And I go, yes. <laughs> She's an annoying bitch. <laughs> the Smiths never sent us one last year. We'll not send one to them yeah. this year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you Brits are big on your Christmas card list, we are certainly you? were, and I think this was sort of, certainly Northern Europeans probably, this was quite a, uh, well, a big deal, and most people sent Christmas cards. Obviously, it's kind of a 19th century phenomenon, I guess. But um, as you say, I mean, people invested a lot of effort in deciding who to send cards to this year. And indeed, you know, they were going to spend a lot of money because the cards are expensive. Well, they cost money and postage. Yeah. Postage costs even more uh, these days. And <laughs> so it's a, it was a big deal to decide who you're actually going to include. And, and we used it originally in one of our very, very first studies because we were kind of wondering, well, how do we identify the people that are kind of meaningful to you with the relationships that you have that are sufficiently meaningful that you'll go out of your way for them. And we hit upon the idea of uh, Christmas cards as a way of doing it. So this probably when this is probably about 15 years ago, I think we did this study. And at that time, people were still very active sending Christmas cards. I'm afraid Christmas cards are dying out as fast here as they are in America. But um, 
So I don't think we could actually do that study again. We wouldn't get a big enough sample is the problem. But fortunately now we, we've got text messaging and phone calling uh, uh, databases that we can use instead. Cool. Uh, now we've talked about out to 150. Let's talk about the one that was most new to me and kind of curious, the uh, circle of one, the ring of 1.5. Now, how do you have, I know, I know you have an answer for this, if I'm going to ask this question rhetorically, how do you have 1.5 friends? Well, this, this goes back to uh, whenever I was talk, giving lectures about this, whether they were to university departments or, or to, to, you know, the lay public, as it were, at, at science festivals. And I would point point to these circles and say, look, you know, here they go, 5, 15, 50, 150, beyond that, it's 500, 1,500, which turns out to be the si typical size of tribes in small-scale societies. And, and indeed, now we know there's another layer out at 5,000, which is the number of faces you can recognize as having seen before. So it's the difference between strangers and non-strangers. Each layer is three times the size of the one inside it. So if you... Project backwards, and we start at five, but actually if you project the, the scaling ratio backwards, there's a layer missing, and that layer's at one and a half. And everybody would sort of sit bolt upright and say, what do you mean <laughs> exactly what you did? How can you have one and a half relationships? And I used to say, <laughs> I was kind of joking, actually. Well, of course, it's the difference between men and women. That's why it's one and a half, because the girls can have two... Uh, intimate friends, a romantic partner, and a best friend forever. It's a well-known phenomenon that, that girls have, a, a very close, intimate, usually but not always, same-sex, platonic uh, friendship. And, you know, us poor blokes can only manage one at a time. So we either have a romantic partner or a best mate that we perhaps go drinking with, but we never manage to have two together at the same time. So um, the average across the two sexes, that's why it's one and a half. And I didn't really believe this, but some Italian colleagues of mine that I was collaborating with collated or analyzed uh, this big Facebook data set and also a Twitter data set that, that they, they'd obtained. And blown me down, there, right at the center of this, was this little layer of one and a half. You know, I practically fell off my bar stool. <laughs> showed me these data, but it's so robust. And every single data set we've looked at ever since, there it is. Uh, and it's basically, it is your intimate friendships, if you like, your intimate relationships. And it, it probably is a consequence of the fact that, by and large, men only have one intimate relationship at a time, whereas women have two, one of which is platonic and the other of which is a more conventional romantic one. Very, very interesting. Now, as a complexity science guy and a dynamic systems guy, when I see something like a scaling law of three, I want to know, where does that come from? <laughs> I know that's a really hard question. And I know you guys have done some agent-based modeling, done some mathematical modeling. What are your senses of what are the constraints and structures and attributes that would produce an emergent result, and that's what you'd have to call that, of scaling law of three. It's a, why would that be? Believe me, this is still something of a mystery. The, the Probably the best suggestion we've had, which actually came from the social psychologists, is that it's a naturally balanced, triads are a naturally balanced social grouping because you will end up if you like, with with a range of opinions going on in there, and perhaps somebody will side with somebody else 
on one course, but it's a kind of dynamic balance in there in which the triadic relationship between them is 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 held in tight sort of uh, balance over time. In other words, it sticks together. But we don't really, I don't think, have anything like a remotely sensible explanation as to why it should be three. Hmm, let me see if I can get some of my friends at the Santa Fe Institute to think about this question. This is just the kind of thing they're good at. That would be absolutely great. I must say, unfortunately, when I was at the Santa Fe Institute as a, visiting some while back for, for, for a week or two, this never came up because we didn't really appreciate back then what, what the problem was. But uh, several groups of physicists have had a very good go at trying to explain this. We can explain it to some extent in terms of the trade-offs between uh, investment patterns. But I, I think at the end of the day, what it probably comes down to is the fact that the core basis of our sociality consists of really rather small groupings, these groups of five and maybe 15, that the groups of five are very much interlinked with each other. But your grouping of 15, your sympathy group, consists of your five and two other people's fives, as it were. So you've got three little clusters of five linked together. And this pattern of replicating that that process creates these these layers. We we see exactly the same thing in primate social groups. So it looks like being a pretty universal thing. But even so it's still not obvious why it should be a scaling ratio of three rather than two. It is two in some cases in primates, in the less socially complex primates, the scaling ratio is two. And that, that's easy to explain because it's simply a consequence of groups splitting when they hit their upper limit, but then rather than moving off, they're somehow held together by weak bonds. And, and we're kind of, I'm always reminded here of deep physics, as they say, with, with, with weak and strong forces bonding groups. You've got or the, the three quarks or what have you. Yeah. You know, the sort of inner core of five being held together with very strong bonds, uh, strong forces, and then weak forces holding the um, other little similar groupings together. And it's creating this sort of ripple effect going out. So everything's then in multiples of three. But, you know, as I say, in less intensely social primates, it does seem to be two. And that can just be explained by natural fission processes. When a group gets too big, it splits into two, and that's a natural division for the way things work in, in, in the, the biological world, it seems. But why it should be three, then, in these complex species is a mystery. You know, why three rather than four? Uh, and what's wrong with five? You know, because at the end of the day, these groupings exist to provide protection and defense for the members of the group, so primarily against predators. So, um, you know, it's exactly the same problem that armies have on the battlefield. The group with the biggest, <laughs> the biggest army wins. So if you want to kind of overwhelm the predators out there, then, then the more, more of you there are in the group, uh, the less likely they are to attack you. And so there's this pressure to increase group size. Must be some costs, too. The, oh, yes. the two, no, no, no. Probably a balance between benefits and costs, right? We often see that in evolutionary dynamics. The costs are absolutely massive. I mean, the costs come in various forms, part of which is the fact that the more of you there are, the further you have to travel each day for everybody to get their sort of 
square yardage of, of foraging ground because you can't all sit in the same pear tree and eat the pears. You all each have to have your own pear tree. So that means you have to travel further. That means you have to eat more food. But in addition to that, the stresses, and these seem to be the really crucial ones, the stresses of living together in, in close proximity don't we know it, you say. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that actually they have terrible consequences uh, in terms of destabilizing the female menstrual cycle. So if you have too many, and this is a mammal-wide problem, and it explains why mammals in general only live in small, very small groups. So if you have more than about five females together in the same group, the stresses of having so many people in close physical proximity so many animals in close physical proximity results in all the females being functionally infertile and the group will go extinct because you're not producing any babies and that the species like primates and a few others horses elephants dolphins for example in order to live in these very big groups have had to solve the problem of how to keep the lid on that those stresses and they've done it essentially by forming coalitions and those coalitions then form these inner, inner cores, because we see exactly the same layered structure in their groups, groupings as well. But there's something odd about these numbers, 5, 15, and 50, and 150, which seem to make them what in network science or graph theory would be called attractors. You know, there's something very stable about those numbers. Anything in between tends to sort of be unstable and fall apart. And because if you look at the distribution of group sizes in primates, those are the predominant numbers. They either tend to live in groups of five or 15 or 50. And if you look at the groups of 50 or our own groups of 150, then what you can see inside the group in the way the relationships between individuals are is those other numbers. So, you know, your group of 50 is subdivided into a group of 15, which is subdivided into a group of five. Exactly as you see in the structure of your social network, exactly as you see in the US Army <laughs> or anybody else's army if it comes to that. Very interesting. Oh, well, it's certainly a topic for more thought. Well, we're getting kind of late in, in time. And we've got so many interesting topics. I'm going to do a little triage here. Let's talk about two more topics. One are your seven pillars of friendship and then how friendships end. How about that? that sounds good. <laughs> And we could end on ending. So let's start with the seven pillars of friendship and homophily. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, it, it's been known for a while that one of the defining features of friendships, as it were, what, what characterizes friendships is that people tend to be very similar to each other in many of their kind of interests and cultural traits, as, as it were. But it turns out to be massively strong effect so if you look at people in the the uh, your friends and and, and even your family members in your various layers of your network you will share much much more in common with the people in the inner core than with the people in the outer core and of course you'll share much much more in common with the people in the outer layers of your network than with people outside your network that you aren't particularly friendly with just acquaintances or maybe even just random strangers. Now, the seven pillars of friendship are really a set of dimensions, cultural dimensions, 
rather like a supermarket barcode on your forehead, if you like, which identify in effect the community you come from. So they they kind of specify your likes and dislikes and beliefs and interests and, and so on uh, and where you come from. And what we seem to do is to sort of wander around the world, checking out people's seven pillars to see, looking for the ones who match ours most closely. Now, these seven pillars are all cultural, so they vary through your lifetime to some extent, but they kind of defined in many ways by the community you grew up in. So I think what they are is the set of common beliefs and the like that define the community you were socialized in, the community where you learned what it is to be human, if you, if you will. And they are essentially having the same language or better still dialect in the case of very big language groups. And dialects are extremely localized in, in these big languages. And in, in English, uh, English English, for example, it's been known for a long time that you can place a native English speaker to within about 20 miles of their birthplace by their dialect. The moment they open their mouth, you know exactly where they come from if you know English dialects. And I, I think this is generically true all around the world. I and mean, certainly other people in sort of Germany and France have said you could probably do the same there too. But I mean, you say dialects are extremely localized. And what it is, is, of course, it's about being able to have a conversation with them. But also, you know, they, the way they use the words, the way you use the word means it's much easier to have a conversation because you kind of don't have to explain the joke and all these kind of difficulties that get in the way of the flow of a conversation. So it's having the same language. Uh, it's coming from the same area. Growing, I think it's growing up in the same area. In other words, you, you know the same streets, you know the same bars, you know the same cafes, even if you weren't there at the same time. Having the same educational trajectory, and I think this is a lot to do with your knowledge and the things that interest you, as it were. This is why clearly doctors have mostly friends, <laughs> as doctors, lawyers only have lawyers <laughs> as friends. Yeah, in my uh, in my family, it's cops, right? Yeah. So I got a lot of cops in the family, and I tell you what, cops have a more inbred social life than Supreme Court justices. You see, uh, you know, and it, again, what it's all about is knowing the same kinds of things to talk about. It's having the same interests. Then there's having the same hobbies and, and interests, having the same worldview, which is really a composite of your moral, political, and religious views. Liking the same music, in other words, having the same musical tastes and having the same sense of humor. Those are the two that are always very surprising. But it turns out the best predictor of whether a stranger would make a, a good friend is actually whether you share the same musical taste with them. That is interesting. That's so very interesting. Now, one of the things that when I, when I was reading this list, one of the things that it struck me as is it kind of confirmed one of my own thoughts which is our society today has this obsession with diversity, right? And people speak of diversity as if it's a monotonically increasing good. More is always better. And I've tried to point out to people that diversity definitely has benefits. There's a lot of good that comes from diversity, but there's also costs. And if we think about your seven pillars and we compare it with, say, the very much increased cosmopolitanism, particularly in the big mega cities as we're talking about, it would seem to me that high levels of diversity would seem to indicate making friendships would be more difficult. 
Yeah, and it's beyond friendships, really, because what what we've been able to show is that the more of these seven pillars you share in common, of course, each pillar can be kind of subdivided in fine detail if you want. The more of the seven pillars you share with somebody, the stronger the friendship is likely to be. So literally, you know, the number of pillars you share declines as you go through your own network. And that's as true of family friendship uh, relationships as it is of, of true friendships. But in addition, you trust the people more. So those who you share more pillars with. And I think that's what they're actually all about. They, they, are, they do identify a very small community, essentially the community you grew up in, which in kind of historical terms is your little local hunter-gatherer community, you know, always living in the same territory whom you see on a regular basis, you know how they think, you know how much you can trust them. It might be you can't trust them at all, but at least you know that for a fact. At least you know. (laughs) But in general, you know, they think like you, they see the world like you, and therefore, you know, you can make assumptions about how trustworthy they are in terms of your daily interactions or negotiations with them. And that's what the origins of the seven pillars are. They're very flexible. And in some sense, that's the whole point. It's like dialects is this precise example of this. Dialects change with an unbelievable speed, generation by generation. You know, so so, so the, the you know the, the, the kids in some obscure part of the Smoky Mountains do not talk exactly like the adults do. And the adults, the parent generation, do not talk exactly like the grandparents. You get this generational shift in dialects, which of course eventually, after a thousand years or so, may give rise to a completely new language. But that generational shift allows you to identify a specific cohort in a specific community as being effectively your peer group, the ones that you can gravitate to and build these kind of coalitionary friendships of mutual support with. And it's very difficult then for incomers to kind of cheat on the system then because they can't come in and pretend to be a member of your community um, that you've just not happened to have met before because you can tell absolutely instantly, you know, you just don't know the things I know (laughs) and you don't speak the way I speak. So this seems to really strongly underpin our friendships, for better or for worse. Um, But I think you're right that one has to think very carefully in terms of how we manage diversity, because there are clearly benefits from, in terms of business, if nowhere else, you know, design of products and, and you know. Oh, food, God damn it. If, we had to eat, if you had to eat British food all the time, God, wouldn't life suck, right? <laughs> Aren't you glad you have Indians and Ethiopians and uh, Afro-Caribbeans? Otherwise, you'd be eating uh, bangers and mash and steak and kidney pie every day. <laughs> exactly so. <laughs> Comfort food, we refer to it as. <laughs> well, I actually like steak and kidney pie. I like to hit the hit the pub in uh, an old style pub with the boys with the cloth hats and get me a steak and kidney pie. But every day, I'm not so sure. But you know, at the same time, in terms of how well a group gets on, then the more they have in common, the more efficiently they will actually work together. So there's a trade off here, a genuine trade off that one has to kind of balance very, very carefully because there's no optimal solution. You know, in principle, more diversity is a good thing, of course, but also 
more closely bonded <laughs> groupings. Exactly. Yeah. So we got to think about it. it's a question of balance, like so many things, right? And trying to attempt to turn diversity into a monotonically increasing good, it just strikes me as yeah. who came up with that? It makes no fucking sense, right? And yet we hear it a lot, yeah. particularly in pop culture. And so, so you know, we have to consider the benefits from diversity and the benefits from homophily or, you know, uh, similarity. This is possibly because the context in which that kind of appeared is the context of wider community integration, communal integration at the kind of global level. And clearly that's a a problem. If you have too much echo chambering going on and siloing going on, you've got communities which don't integrate well enough and, you know, you don't benefit from culturally what they have to offer but you know the and, and therefore multiculturalism and diversity is a good thing in that it, it may um increase your your levels of communal cohesion if you like but there are contexts in which applying that willy-nilly to everything simply isn't going to work because of the task demands that are actually involved it may be counterproductive on on certain scales in certain contexts and i think that's really the message, isn't it? It's well worth people thinking about. Well, let's go to our last topic, and we'll end with the end. You have a whole chapter on how friendships and also romantic relationships and other such things end. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think the short answer is friendships have a natural cycle anyway. They don't last forever. So people kind of very often sort of concerned at the moment that, you know, when they emerge from lockdown, uh, their friendships will have changed and they will be losing friends and and so on. And and my answer to that is, no, that's just part of the natural cycle. That happens anyway. At certain ages, it's very, very fast. Our our data sets uh, on kind of the late teens, 20-somethings, suggest that something in the order of a third of all friendships change every year. At least they change layer. Uh, which means they're changing emotional position, if you like. And, you know, if you don't see people for a while, the quality of that friendship will decay to the point where they cease to be counted as a member of your 150. I mean, they they just get pushed out into the, the, the acquaintance layer beyond. Somebody I once knew, but I haven't seen for ages, and I really don't know much about what they're up to these days. Turnover is going on all the time. It's a bit slower once you're into midlife, 30s, 40s, 50s. It increases, seems to increase a bit more as you, you get older, as people leave and move away and uh, when they retire and so on and, and, and perhaps die as well. But still, even in midlife, I mean, there's a constant turnover going on. Friendships probably don't last more than about... 10 years, except in a few rare cases. So, you know, if you look back on all the people you were at uh, high school with, you may have kept up with one, maybe two particularly strong friendships, which have kept, sort of survived the test of time, if you like. But the rest of them, if you ever get to meet up (laughs) when you're 40 or 50 at a school reunion, you kind of, it's kind of entertaining for half an hour, but at the end of it, you kind of think, dear God, was I friends with these people? (laughs) Who are they? Um, So this is a natural part of the cycle of social relationships, I think, of all kinds. But of course, there's a difference between those which drift apart, which kind of is what tends to happen with 
generic friends. So you know, if somebody kind of annoys you just a bit too much, you just don't see them. And the friendship then just dies very, very quietly and slowly and, and disappears. The interesting ones, of course, are the catastrophic failures, which are very difficult to repair. You often only repaired with deathbed reconciliations because the intensity of the breakup is so great. And they tend to be confined to very close relationships. So parents, siblings, romantic partners, obviously, you're kind of very much your best friend, the best friend forever in that sort of sense. And they tend to be the result of catastrophic misbehavior at some point. In other words, well, let's put it this way. I think with those very close relationships, because they matter to you, you tend to be much more tolerant of them and give them more leeway. And also that makes the other person become more casual, a little bit more casual and and just kind of assume that everything's fine. And so you you have constant little sort of irritations that go on that, that get overlooked and forgiven and so on. But eventually it's a straw on the camel's back phenomenon. So the final straw may be quite trivial, but it's the 20th time they've stood you up in, in the last couple of years or, you know, they've borrowed money and not paid back. And, and you kind of just draw the line and say, that's it. And that kind of breach, it's a breach of trust is, is what seems to, to happen in these cases. And it, it, it's... You've invested so much in those relationships, you feel so let down that you're deeply upset about it. And it's that level of upset then that tends to create this really complete rift. But what was surprising to us was when we carried out a survey to see how common different kinds of breakups were and what were the causes, is how many people fell out with their parents, or alternatively, parents falling out with their children. But you know, it's that really that relationship which you imagine ought to last a lifetime and beyond even and yet um, it seemed astonishingly common about 20% of all major breakups something of that order were between parents and offspring and, and those are often you know almost irreconcilable the, the hurt and the trauma is so great from the breakup that it's extremely difficult to sort of get back together and forgive, if you like. In a way, you might you might do with a casual friend. Oh, all right, you know, I forgive you, but I'm not seeing you again. That's that. <laughs> but with you know, to do that with close family members, siblings, or parents, uh, seems very counterproductive because they're the one group of people who, when everything else has fallen apart and everybody else has abandoned you. They are the one group of people who will stick by you and come to your aid. So, you know, this is a considerable cost that some people appear to be paying for whatever benefits they think they're getting out of improving their social relationships, social networks in other ways, maybe. Yeah, the old saying, uh, what's the definition of family? The people who have to take you in. Exactly so. (laughs) And uh, if you break those up and you're really stuck and you're right, it's a surprising amount of of that. And you mentioned something in the book, which is something I've seen before, and with a scary amount of frequency is how siblings can fall out permanently and irretrievably at the time of the death of the parent, or maybe the last parent in particular. Yes, I, I think this is a consequence. I mean, that's a consequence, clearly, 
of the stress of the circumstances. And often there are kind of arguments about inheritances and details and who's been doing all the work, looking after the parents in their old age and how are we going to do the service, the, the, the burial service and what have you, you know, can cause lots of, of disagreements that become quite fatal in that sense. But I also think it's partly a reflection of the fact that our ability to manage relationships is really very, very, very small scale. So that while the parents are present, they can act as both as the kind of policemen, if you like, of, of the family social environment, but also the sense of obligation you have to them means, and it goes back to this mentalizing business of being able to handle many different mind states at once, that you don't want to fall out with your siblings because, you know, your parent is part of that triangle. And if you, you know, have an argument with your sibling, it's tantamount also to having an argument with the parent. And so you kind of keep a lid on it. But when the parent's no longer there to provide that sense of obligation, then the relationship can fracture because the problem for you at that point, if you like, is that you also now have another new network that's been growing over the years to deal with, and that's your own offspring, your own family. So, you know, what what was once a parent and some siblings clearly now consists of a parent or parents, uh, uh, some siblings and the siblings' own offspring, and the siblings are turning their attention from upwards, if you like, towards the parents and, and the family they were born into to the family they're creating. And that uh, becomes, you know, sort of a bit tricky to handle several sets of these simultaneously when they're all so close and intense. And so, you know, we have this kind of psychological limitation on the number of relationships we can, close relationships we can manage and keep sort of functioning together. And of course, you've got this problem of scale all the time is the bigger that uh, family extended family unit gets the more different opinions you can have and therefore the more arguments you're going to end up with so it's sort of everything is sort of conspiring against um against us in this respect i think and that that may explain why you you know when when you get the added stress of a death and the funeral arrangements and it's sort of what to do with the inheritances and all that kind of thing it's very easy for the thing to boil over and explode and, and fractionate completely and, and become irreparably so, which, of course, is a great, great pity that it does, as you say, seem to happen surprisingly often. Indeed. Well, on that somewhat dire note, uh, we will have to end it here. We're already all past our normal time, but this conversation was so interesting. And as I mentioned, I did leave out some of the more interesting stuff, you know, sex differences between friendship networks, romantic relationships, and some other very cool things. So if you want to learn more, read Friends by Robin Dunbar. And thank you, Robin, for just a most interesting conversation. Oh, thank you very much. It's been great fun, actually. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.